Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Amon Four. Here's what's coming up. The only reason the border is not secure is Donald Trump and his MAGA Republican friends. After a bipartisan immigration deal is blocked in the Senate, where does it leave a system at breaking point? I asked Jonathan Blitzer, who reports on the human lives at stake. Then, as Ukraine funding also falls victim to Washington dysfunction, we take a look at Putin's standing inside Russia with historian Nina Khrushcheva. Plus, we rarely get to see how powerful journalism can be when it actually is doing what we want it to do. A reminder of the impact of investigative journalism. We look back at Christian's conversation on the film Spotlight with its director, Tom McCarthy, and star, Mark Ruffalo. Also ahead, dispatches from a life in the press. Journalist Calvin Trillin with stories from more than 60 years of reporting. He shares them with Walter Isaacson. Welcome, everyone. I'm Audie Cornish in Washington, D.C., sitting in for Christiane Amanpour. Well, it's deja vu for U.S. lawmakers who failed yet again this week to agree on a solution to the country's immigration crisis. Now, this time, security provisions designed to draw bipartisan support ended up backfiring, with former President Donald Trump turning the tide against it, and then congressional Republicans following suit. Now, it's already a defining issue in this year's presidential election. But beyond the politics are countless human stories, as the number of unauthorized immigrants crossing the border keeps reaching record highs, and a backlog of cases in U.S. immigration court passes three million. So if this week's deal had passed in Congress, it would have been one of the most significant changes to U.S. immigration policy in decades. Now, evidence of just how long the issue has remained a stubborn political challenge in Washington? To get a sense of why, we turn now to Jonathan Blitzer. He's covered the issue for years, and he explores how we got here in his new book, Everyone Who Is Gone Is Here, The United States, Central America, and the Making of a Crisis. He joins us from Washington, D.C. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Now, it looks like this particular bill was focused on what I called security provisions. So when we talk about immigration reform in this case, what were the kinds of things that were on the table? Yeah, I mean, this as a reform measure is quite narrow, Um, but essentially what was being negotiated were changes to the asylum system, essentially making it harder for people to gain entry through the asylum system by raising the standards for those initial interviews that people go through. Um, And related to that, this also established certain triggers so that if the traffic reached a certain point at the southern border, the president would have the authority to quote unquote shut down the border which essentially means that the president would have the authority to suspend the processing of asylum altogether. So fairly narrow 
but notably conservative measures that, that typically in the sweep of Washington reform on immigration uh, would be paired with other measures that would be more ambitious and broader. But under the circumstances, the political kind of maneuvering room is quite narrow. It's interesting because in your book, you have the title Central America. I think for so long in the past, there was a focus on the southern border of uh, with Mexico about maybe Mexican, mostly male workers crossing for work, etc. But the conversation has changed over the last decade to Central America. Can you talk about what is driving that migratory flow? And if there's a difference here between economic migrants and asylum seekers? Well, the situation at the border has even evolved since I worked on this book. So you have one element of it which comes from Central America. So families and children seeking asylum at the southern border, which, as you say, was a sea change from how the border tended to work through the 90s and early 2000s. You had all across the region, starting around 2014, tens of thousands of families seeking asylum, fleeing violence, crime, uh, corruption, poverty all across the region. Um, now what you're seeing layered on top of that is a more global population showing up at the southern border. So people primarily from Venezuela who have been fleeing the country's economic collapse, it's tilted to outright totalitarianism. Uh, and so, you know, you have a lot of people who are showing up at the border whose claims for asylum, uh, by the strict definitions set forward by the statute that governs asylum, don't have the best case, but who nevertheless are arriving at the border desperate for protection, desperate to, to pursue opportunity. And because in Washington, there hasn't been a more systematic effort to widen legal avenues for people to reach the United States, the southern border has become that pressure point forever. When they get to the border, when they get to the U.S., some of them, if they're able to cross, might end up on a bus, right, <laughs> funded by maybe a Republican governor sending them to a northern city, New York, Chicago, et cetera, which has now kind of changed the public sentiment and dynamic around how people talk about these migrants. Can you talk a little bit about that shift and how much it's actually changed the conversation, even for people who thought that they were maybe had more kind of progressive politics on immigration? Yeah, I think the governor of Texas's decision, this began in the spring of 2022, to, to bus migrants to blue cities across the country, Denver, Washington, New York, Chicago, uh, and to do so specifically with the aim of causing chaos. In other words, not coordinating with local officials, not coordinating with state officials, luring people onto these buses with promises of jobs that don't materialize on the other side of the trip. Um, this drastically changed how Democrats have come to think about the border. And now, as blue cities are facing real economic strains and humanitarian needs, uh, there has been a lot of frustration among state and local officials that the federal government hasn't more swiftly come to their defense and that there really is a problem at the border that needs to be dealt with. And so it's incredibly striking to see how far Democrats have, have started to shift on this issue uh, over the last you know, couple of years almost directly as a consequence of this political stunt coming out of Texas. Now, um, the sort of presumptive nominee, former President uh, Donald Trump, of course, is taking advantage of this because this was a huge campaign issue for him the first time around. This time around, um, it's interesting, he's playing on the dynamics that you're talking about. He called this potential Senate compromise a death wish for the Republican Party. And here's what he said at a Fox News town hall earlier this year. We have millions and millions of people here. It is not sustainable. Did you see in New York City with it getting 
the regular students out and they're putting migrants in their place, we are going to have the largest deportation effort in the history of our country. We're bringing everybody back to where they came from. We have no choice. We have no choice. So, Jonathan, just a quick fact check. Is this having a pressure on the local economies in these cities? Well, it's, it's, there's a sort of tragic irony in this because, in fact, all across these cities where migrants are arriving, there are acute labor needs. So, in fact, people, employers are looking to hire people. And you do have, in the arrival of, of, of all of these migrants, uh, a, a, a willing and able workforce. The problems are technical. The problems consist mainly in making sure that these new arrivals have the ability to work and get work authorization. And part of what's slowing that down is government bureaucracy. Some of what's slowing that down is partisan politics. Um, but this is kind of always coming back to the same theme with, with Trump and with the Republicans, which is, you know, this notion somehow that by talking tough, the Republicans are more orderly in their approach to this issue is, is not only wrong, but we've also seen demonstrated in recent history uh, just how wrongheaded this is. And so when Trump was president, you saw the harshest policies we've really ever witnessed at the southern border, separating parents from children in an effort to deter other migrants from coming. What happened within a year of that? Record numbers of new arrivals at the southern border. So toughness alone, tough talk, least of all, doesn't even begin to cover what the needs actually are. And I want to follow up with something you just said there, because I think upwards of a thousand migrant children are still fundamentally separated from their families in what was billed at the time as some kind of act of deterrence. I want to take a step back and talk about some of the people you have encountered in your reporting. Um, can you give us an example of someone kind of caught in this bind, right? Because as we said, we're, we're often dealing with families. We're often dealing with people leaving uh, for extraordinary circumstances. Uh, one of the main figures in my book is a woman in her late 30s from Honduras named Kelly, who came to the United States fleeing violence in Honduras uh, in 2017. This was in September of 2017, at a moment actually when that family separation policy was being tested out in the clandestine way in the El Paso border area. She was apprehended in New Mexico, which is part of that broader district. She was separated from her children. At that moment in time, no one in the wider country really understood that there was a policy afoot to do this. And so she suffered essentially in private with really no lifeline on the outside and witnessed the earliest days of these family separation cases from inside a detention center in El Paso. So she gathered the names of other women who had recently been separated from her children. She wrote these names down. She mailed them out of the facility to, to local lawyers, to government officials, to anyone who might receive her mail. Um, she eventually got deported by the Trump administration back to Honduras. She traveled through Mexico, reached the southern border again because her family was in the United States. Uh, and she winds up in 2021 being one of the first families reunited under the Biden administration's effort to kind of piece together what had happened. So that's her arc and just a kind of a window into the last couple of years of immigration policy at the border. You know, we mentioned earlier the backlog in immigration courts. We talked about these policy shifts and now this real emphasis on what people call deterrence, which I just want to quickly underline, does it work? You know, my, my experience in this reporting is these kinds of tough policies meted out at the border tend to shift how someone maybe games out the question of crossing the border, but it doesn't do anything to change their calculus 
in terms of their need to emigrate from their home country in the first place and flee toward protection to, to safety and opportunity in the United States. And so, you know, what we watch time after time on, on both sides of the aisle, frankly, is this idea that deterrence somehow will save the broader system from what is a global phenomenon. We're in the midst of a moment of, of, of genuine mass migration, the likes of which we really haven't seen since the Second World War. And so the idea that border policy alone is somehow going to manage this broader, almost world historical flow, is it, it, it's wrong and it, it really ends up only perpetuating the problem. And this is part of a global issue. And also, as you've pointed out, I think in some of your writing, post-pandemic, there are migratory flows that kicked off as well that I don't think people fully understood at the time um, how they would affect the, the southern border. There are so many complex factors and, and the political conversation admits essentially none of them into the into the debate. Uh, and so it's extremely frustrating because we've all actually lived some of the recent events that would explain some of the flows. But in, in, in politics, uh, there's really no allowance to be made for, for example, what you're describing, uh, how COVID has affected economies in South America, how uh, political problems in Venezuela have uprooted millions of people since 2015, how you essentially had this problem at the southern border pent up in the final months of the Trump administration, but kept through a series of specific policies sort of out of sight and out of mind from the broader national conversation. All of these forces were in effect. Uh, extreme weather events, people fleeing, you know, the effects and ravages of climate change. All of this stuff is snowballed. Uh, and so to, to sort of act as though this were only a question of administering a tougher system at the border is to just miss the entire context in which this situation, this human drama is playing out. You now have U.S. President Biden talking about, you know, shutting down the border in one way or another. Can you talk about what you're going to be listening for? Because we're now in a campaign year um, and clearly we're not listening for right a vote on legislation. So what to you would be kind of a turning point moment or, or something we should pay attention to? I would say two things in, in, in response. The first is, to my mind, what the failure of this Senate bill means is that the Biden administration is not getting money that it really does need to up resources at the southern border. And so that to me is a big open question that's gone essentially unaddressed in Washington, which is, you know, the federal government has requested $14 billion to increase staffing at the border, increase resources to relieve some of the pressure at the southern border. None of that is getting addressed because all of the negotiations keep tripping up over broader political issues. So, uh, you know, I'm not sure that any of the acute stresses the administration is facing are gonna go away. And I think basically the places to look to see how this will play out and how this will affect the, the 2024 campaign are, are in cities, are in blue cities primarily, where we continue to see the, the, the runoff of this unaddressed problem at the southern border. When, when the president talks about shutting down the border, and it should be said, it's quite notable for a Democratic president who in 2020 campaigned on precisely the opposite on the idea that he was going to reverse the inhumanity of the Trump administration and restore the ethos of asylum at the southern border. When you see him under this kind of tremendous pressure to feel that he needs to rush out ahead of these Senate negotiators to make perfectly clear that, no, he would be wholly tough on, on, on immigration at the southern border and that he's even willing to suspend asylum, I think it just kind of betrays the broader sense in Washington of desperation that you have Republicans deliberately sabotaging the situation at the border, trying to make the situation worse and more chaotic so that they have an issue to campaign on. And you have a White House which needs to manage the politics on the one hand, 
but the actual operations on the other. I mean, they're going to be in office through the next year. Uh, and it's important for them to actually handle what some of the human needs are at the border and in blue cities. Jonathan Blitzer is author of Everyone Who Is Gone Is Here. Thank you so much for this context. Thanks for having me. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support, your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff, and some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Now, money for Ukraine was also included in that failed border deal, though a separate aid package is now potentially advancing in the Senate. But it's another delay after months of pleading by Kiev where the situation is dire. According to the Financial Times, the Ukrainian defense minister is telling allies his military is completely outgunned, barely able to fire more than 2,000 shells a day. And they need at least three times that. Meanwhile, Russia's president seems content to wait out Ukraine's allies and take advantage of the wobbling public sentiment in the U.S. with right-wing commentator Tucker Carlson. Joining me now on all of this is Nina Khrushcheva, a Russian historian and author who's also the great-granddaughter of a previous Russian leader, Nikita Khrushchev. Thanks so much for coming back to the show. Thank you. Now, the first part of this uh, so-called interview, even Putin sort of mocked Tucker Carlson in this conversation, saying, uh, you're sitting through my history lesson. What history was he recounting? Um, because he does it a lot, right? So what was it that he spent his time on? Uh, well, I'm not going to repeat it because it's long and tedious and it's thousand years and Putin loves to be that kind of historian that... Um, um, in his spare time, looks at history and knows it better than anybody. So he began with the origins of Russia in the uh, first century and, well, no, not first century, whatever, nine, 900-something, uh, and just went on and on and on. And it was interesting that his relationship with Tucker Carlson was that you, you wanted an interview, so here I am, and I'm going to tell you all this very long story and in fact, he immediately said, do you want a show? You want a serious conversation? So Tucker Carlson is a very, he seemed like a kind of very obedient puppy who said, oh, of course, the great master, tell me all you need to say. But it was a little 
comical because in Russia, everybody got used to this long and tedious history lessons began with the Rurik and everything else. But I think for the American and global audience, that was a was a little daunting, the first 20, whatever, 40 minutes uh, of this. So in an interview was a show of Putin's strength. And Tucker Carlson certainly played into this, uh, himself creating a bit of a PR moment, uh, you know, being kicked out of Fox News and now doing it all on Twitter. So suddenly Tucker Carlson is a global journalist. You know, you're right about how Putin very much is constantly trying to rewrite and hammer home his narrative of history, part of his propaganda. But why do you think there was any point to doing an interview like this? Is there something about the moment with the war in Ukraine? Is there something he senses about domestic politics that he could take advantage of? Well, of course. I mean, it's all of the above. I mean, the war in Ukraine, you just said in your lead that uh, Ukraine is facing uh, serious problems. Vladimir Zelensky, the president, just um, um, fired his uh, rather well-respected um, um, general of the uh, Ukrainian forces, Valery Zaluzhny. Uh, we know that there's some trouble at the battlefield. The summer counteroffensive didn't really work out as expected. So Putin does feel that this is his moment. He wants to remind everybody that he's willing to negotiate, but here he is uh, going to stand his ground for as long as it takes. And uh, uh, what a convenient moment for an American journalist. I mean, you know, for at least those who recognize Tucker Carlson base think he's an important journalist, not for the rest. But I don't think in Russia they uh, fully understand this kind of distinctions of American journalism and American politics. So what would be the moment? Suddenly the American journalist comes and wants to give uh, wants to give a, a fair picture of what Russia is, what Putin's understanding of history is. But he does this all the time. I and mean, for those of us who listen to him um, every time he speaks, these long, very long history lessons are just part of the uh, part of his agenda. Because the whole interview was kind of a story of how Russia was always unrecognized, was always uh, a victim of the West, and finally now with a great Putin, he can. Uh, speak uh, to all of that and respond to all of that. And so he wanted, uh, supposedly, to say to the world that I stand here and you deal with me the way I am, or basically my way or the highway. Nina, I want to talk a little bit about um, what's happening in within Russia, because obviously there was, for instance, at one point, uh, a candidate, uh, Boris Nadezhden, who was speaking out against the war in Ukraine. And Putin always tries to project not just strength, but stability at home and, and kind of papers over what's going on. Can you talk about whether that candidacy was seen as a genuine one? Um, it wasn't really seen as a genuine one because uh, Nadezhdin was not very well known, but he was very well known in journalistic and political circles, uh, circles because he has been in politics of different kinds for uh, for many years. And his statements that he's uh, he says, I'm openly an anti-Putin candidate. I am uh, for peace. And peace is not really a big word in Russia. In fact, you can go to prison if you, uh, if you keep uh, talking about peace, just in case you shouldn't be wanting that. You want to have a global war or some sort of uh, victory uh, in Ukraine, at least. Uh, so he was like that. I want to open elections. I don't 
want uh, Russia's isolation. And so for this, actually, people can be branded foreign agents or, as I said, can go to prison. Suddenly he's open with this. He collects signatures. And uh, so that was um, an idea for the Kremlin that we're going to pretend it's some sort of a democratic formula because big word for these elections, not elections, for Putin's becoming president again uh, in March 2024 next month. Uh, is that it should be it should look legitimate. And so he was part of that legitimization effort. And I think what they didn't understand, they didn't really count uh, uh, on how much protest, the inside protest, sort of the silent majority that is is afraid to speak out, but can speak out in those lines signing for Nadezhdin because they have a hope. And Nadezhdin is a, if you translate the name, it's the, it's a name signifies hope, have a hope that some other alternative to Putin is possible. And so the minute it became clear that Nadezhdin could become a real force, we know that I think yesterday uh, his signatures were deemed unacceptable and he was banned from um, running for presidency. So the Kremlin tried the minute it had a fear that somehow Putin may, may be undermined. They immediately turned on the machine on uh, and said it's illegal for Nadezhdin to to try again. But I think it's it actually becomes a problem for Putin. So there is a protest brewing somewhere in Russia. We don't know when it will come out, but it might come out um, soon enough. You said brewing somewhere. You've also talked in the past about kind of violence um, that makes its way through the culture um, that kind of flows from what kind of the atmosphere Putin has created. Uh, yes, it is. I mean, and, and, it, and that's something that uh, you see every day. I mean, people are, uh, there's all these reports of people fighting in shopping malls. There are reports on uh, uh, on kids uh, fighting other kids. Uh, there are people attacking on uh, each other on the subway. So it is, with the two years of war and with this very militant rhetoric coming out of the Kremlin, coming out of TV propagandists is that we are going to defeat everybody. We are going to take, uh, uh, we are going to take our pride and whatnot. Even if there is also an idea that, oh, Russia is so stable, I think the word you used, Russia is so stable, the reality it is not. I mean, you can only pretend for so much. And so it is a kind of a very schizophrenic reality that on the surface it seems stable, but underneath this sort of horrors of a, of a country at war that pretends that it's not at war is, is really brewing. And as I said, uh, and every time, especially somewhere far away from Moscow, their protests, uh, or even in Moscow, a few weeks ago, there was a protest of, of uh, wives and mothers who, whose uh, um, uh, sons and, and husbands are at war and they have not been rotated back. Uh, so the, the 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 women were not arrested most of the time, but the journalists who covered it were arrested. So there's one there's one way or another the state is going to threaten those that uh, threaten those that try to speak up. But once again, Nadezhdin showed that that even when the threats are there, people are still are not afraid ultimately to go and say we don't want that. Nina, I just want to ask you one more thing, which is uh, the nods in, in the interview towards uh, the journalists who are being held um, in Russia. Were there any little signs or cues there that there might be movement in that area? 
Well, what I heard was that Putin was sort of non-committal, but he's never committal. Uh, but he did say that I want the journalist to go back to the motherland. I mean, he, of course, reiterated that he is, uh, even Gershkovich probably was a CIA agent. But then he said, well, maybe it was because he was, I don't know, warm-hearted or something. But he did say that the work, that we, we continue work in that area. And I think for me, that was a sign if the work uh, is being done, that may result in something. But I think what he also said, and it's very important for everybody to hear, that this is all should be done quietly because, and that his Russians been saying that many, many times, is that when the Americans start talking about potential solutions or talking about sort of bring the public opinion into it, the Russians immediately close down and say, we're not going to deal with it. So if anything is going to be done, it really needs to be done quietly. And that's what I recommend without really advertising any potential signs and moves at all. Historian Nina Khrushcheva, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Now we turn to the enduring value of storytelling. Mark Ruffalo has notched his fourth Supporting Actor Oscar nomination for his performance in the film Poor Things. Now, back in 2016, he was nominated for his role in the investigative thriller Spotlight, which brought home the Best Picture Prize. Now, it tells the true story of the Boston Globe team that revealed the systemic cover-up of the child sex abuse crisis in the Catholic Church. Now, in the era of misinformation, the erosion of truth and fact, and the closure of local news outlets around the world, this is a film that reminds us of the importance of journalistic integrity. So we wanted to dig back into the archives and bring you Christian's interview with Spotlight star Mark Ruffalo and director Tom McCarthy. Gentlemen, welcome to you both. This is really an extraordinary story. I guess I want to first start by asking you, Mark, what draw you, what drew you to want to portray this character in this film? Uh, well, it started with the script. I, I found it, um, I found it uh, really beautifully written and powerful. And then uh, the character is is really kind of the the essential great journalist. And um, we rarely get to see uh, journalists that are really getting the job done uh, in movies. And we rarely get to see how powerful journalism can be when it actually is doing what we uh, want it to do. And I thought that this story and, and this character was a, was a real way to open up this debate, uh, not even a debate, but really shed some light on, on these abuses that have been going on for so long and been, and been really nothing more than covered up. And let me ask you, uh, Tom, obviously I could go on listening for, for hours to how, how great it is to have good journalism. I obviously believe the same as you do. But what did it say to you? Right. What sparked your interest, particularly in this corner of investigative journalism? Well, look, at first, as, a, as a writer and as a director, I, like Mark, I just found the material incredibly compelling. It's, it's a very entertaining story about a very dark matter. Um, and, and I thought approaching this matter through the eyes of the journalists was really exciting. No one really knew that story about this investigation and how they broke this. This was a local story in Boston and it has global impact. It's still going on today, as we know. The Pope's Commission just watched the film. They're talking about it. There's a lot of conversation coming out 
out of that. And, and I just felt it was one of those few films that had the potential to be incredibly entertaining, but really have an impact, be about a couple of things. Survivors uh, and, 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 their, and their, what, their ex what they have experienced, what they continue to experience, and also journalism. So it just seemed like one of those projects that if we could do it right, uh, it would have a great impact. Well, let me ask you, um, because I, I want to know what you actually think might be the result of the film and of the commission that screened it in the Vatican first. Were you surprised, Mark? You tweeted about it. Do you both think, do you hope, are you skeptical that it will have a lasting effort in, in ensuring the transparency that everybody wants, but also really holding those guilty and accountable accountable? Uh, to be totally honest with you, the, some, some kind of alarming things have happened in the past few days. Um, one of the victims that sits on the, on the, the Pope's council uh, for the abused uh, was basically um, put on a uh, leave of absence without him knowing it. Uh, it, it doesn't bode well, uh, and... and he feels that, that right now the church is just engaging in the same kind of obfuscation. Uh, it does appear kind of a bit like um, they're doing a nice PR push to, to quell the pressure that this movie is creating, but not really going through with the steps that it's going to take to right the wrongs. Um, they haven't really put together the, uh, the tribunal that the Pope promised was going to happen in order to start holding the people accountable uh, for these crimes um, that, that should be held accountable. I, I yeah, want to play... I think it's clear that they've made go ahead. some progress on this, that they've made some progress, but I think activists... Uh, would certainly be calling for more action and more transparency. And Peter Saunders, who's a UK citizen, who is a survivor of clerical abuse, who was asked to step off the council because he's outspoken, because he's making, uh, he's crying for more transparency and more action and, and faster, faster, faster as the stakes of the welfare of children are, um, uh, obviously there's no, there's no greater stakes. So um, I, I think this is, it's, what's most exciting is that the film is creating some discussion, obviously, and this is what we're looking for. I think this, is, this platform is very, very um, necessary right now. I, I want to play for you a little clip from the film which goes to the, uh, the yeah. whole issue of transparency and urgency, and then we'll talk about it. It's time, Robbie. It's time. They knew, and they let it happen to kids, okay? It could have been you, it could have been me, it could have been any of us. We gotta nail these scumbags, we gotta show people that nobody can get away with this, not a priest or a cardinal or a freaking pope. So that is, is truly dramatic, and Mark, your character is imploring the head of the investigative unit, the spotlight unit, to go with this story. So while we talk about you know, the great job journalists did in eventually uncovering this, and particularly the Boston Globe, obviously, there was a time, too long of a time, wasn't there, that journalists knew that something was up and actually, actually sort of, if you like, buried the story. Yeah, you know... Uh that's the sad part of the story, but but it's all of us, you know. It's, it's it wasn't just journalists. It had to be politicians. It had to be the legislature. It had to be the communities, the families in power. It's um it's it's really a problem of of, of all of us, and it's really about personal accountability, and um, and so 
you know, culturally, we get to a place where we're ready to have a really hard discussion. And I think that's where we are right now. Uh, this movie didn't just pop out um, out of the blue. It, it, it sort of came out of a need for the culture to have this discussion at this moment in time with this particular pope uh, and, 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 a, and a greater illumination that's happening throughout the world on these kinds of issues. It's, 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 they did a good job of hiding it. But the days of hiding these kinds of issues are gone now. I mean, the Internet, uh, people's ability to speak directly to one another, it's, it's, it's created this decentralized kind of um, uh, information uh, nexus that, that makes these kinds of stories uh, finally uh, have a powerful way of being told. And so, um, yes, it's a shame that that happened, but here we are today. We know the truth, and we know the truth culturally. It's no longer a story that's in a small uh, segment of the population. We all know about it now. So now we get to act on it, and that's the difference between then and now. And, and just talking about how, you know, quote, we all knew about it. There's a chilling scene, Tom, that you capture brilliantly of the character playing Cardinal Law talking to... Uh, the character playing uh, Marty Baron, who was the new uh, head of the Boston Globe. Cardinal Law saying, well, you know, we're all stronger when all the great institutions work together. And Marty Baron saying, well, actually, no, we, the press, have to stay apart. That is, is, is so, so much about so many issues that the press has to deal with, including politics, right? Right. Yeah, I think it's what makes the film especially relevant today, right, is that it's dealing with accountability and transparency mm -hmm. of all institutions. And it's also letting us know why a free and healthy press is so important, because it does stand apart. It does hold powerful individuals accountable, uh, and it provides the citizens with the information they need to choose to act or not. And I think that's ultimately uh, what the film's aspiring to talk to and to mm -hmm. speak to. And I think, honestly, it's why it's been connecting, because it even goes beyond this one particular crime, which of course is very heinous, the abuse within the Catholic Church, but it speaks to all institutions today. And I think ultimately asks the bigger question, what can we do? What's our part in this? What's my personal responsibility in this as citizens? And I think that's uh, in some ways an incredibly hopeful message of this film, that we can affect change. All right, Mark Ruffalo, Tom McCarthy, thank you so much. And just one final word on Spotlight. You have shown also how incredibly pervasive it was. You end with a scroll that we're going to show right now of all the towns and cities in the United States and elsewhere around the world where there had been those sex abuse uh, abominations against children. Thank you both indeed for joining us. Thank you thank very you much. Great to be here. Thank you. Still an incredibly moving and poignant reminder of the scale of that abuse. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. Now we want to talk about someone who knows all about the power of great journalism. 
legendary writer Calvin Trillin. With more than 60 years of experience under his belt, Trillin's vibrant reporting has taken him from covering the civil rights movement in the 60s to just humorous observations of American regional food scenes. Now, his new book is called The Lead, and it's a collection of the best pieces from his illustrious career. He joins Walter Isaacson to share some of his favorite anecdotes in the field. Thank you, Artie. And Calvin Trillin, welcome to the show. Thank you, Walter. Nice to be here. Congratulations on your new book. And it has that rollicking, humorous feel, that sort of droll humor you've had throughout your career. But in some ways, there's a serious strand to it, which is you talk about starting off as a reporter in the South during the Civil Rights Movement in 1961. And you say, if that hadn't have happened, you might not have stayed a reporter. Explain why that was so important to your career. Well, I think particularly when you're just starting out, uh, it's helpful if you get knowledge on one subject. Uh, in this case, it happened to be an important subject, the uh, desegregation struggle in the South. But uh, the, uh, the confidence you get from uh, knowing that uh, what's on the page is uh, something that, that not everybody knew and, and uh, that you know a little more about it by, by just writing about it constantly. And in, in the South, I was in the Time Bureau in Atlanta, and occasionally I, I wrote about something else, about a football coach or something like that. But usually I wrote about race. And um, so I think that's, that's, a, a, that's valuable for, uh, for a young reporter. Despite the fact that you started by covering the civil rights movement, you said you never became that interested in politics, that you wanted to cover America without being one of those people who tried to cover congressional hearings. Explain to me what you did uh, throughout your career to keep your uh, fingers on the pulse of uh, fun stories in America. For 15 years, I, I did a 3,000 word piece for The New Yorker every three weeks. Um, and, um, it's odd because, um, magazine reporters would say, how do you keep up the pace? And newspaper reporters would say, what else do you do? Uh, didn't seem like a full-time job to them. Uh, but, but I, I thought that I remember my sister when we were kids, well, I was very interested in baseball and she said, I don't understand why you care about baseball. They're all the same except for the score. <laughs> and I got to thinking a little bit that was true of, of uh, politics, uh, particularly as, as we're seeing now, uh, 80 or 90 percent of the coverage is uh, who's going to win. Something we'll all know the night after election. Uh, if, you, if, if all the reporters defected to uh, uh, Venezuela, we would still know it the night after the election. So it, it, it seemed to me less interesting than stories about regular people, ordinary people, or if my, if my colleagues will forgive me, regular people rather than them. <laughs> One of the ways you covered it was through food. But you didn't, it wasn't like the best of all restaurants. You just love great local restaurants. About a week ago, I went to Mosca's down here in New Orleans or near New Orleans. 
And I thought of you because you used Mosca's or Arthur Bryan's Pit Barbecue in Kansas City as a way of understanding colorful people. Tell me about Mama Mosca. Well, the Mosca's, uh, it, it was said that the, 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 the rumor, well, the legend, I should say, in, in New Orleans was that, uh, uh, that Mr. Mosca, the original, uh, was Al Capone's chef. Uh, that really wasn't true. Uh, they did come from one of those uh, suburbs around Chicago where uh, funerals are also attended by FBI people in cars with cameras. Uh, but uh, Al Capone, uh, he was an Al Capone chef. Um, they were, uh, Mama Mosca at one point said when somebody did a review uh, of uh, the restaurant, said, I don't care what they say because I can't read. It was a great protection for a restaurant proprietor. Uh, and Mosca's just uh, stuck to what it was doing. And um, I was very fond of it. I'll just mention uh, that I was the state's item reporter who wrote that story when uh, Mama Mosca said, don't worry, I don't read. That's right. I, I had forgotten that. And, and uh, I, it should have been in the story, of course, but um, I don't know what happened. We cut you out for space, Walter. I think yes, space reason. Yeah, it you was a couple, couple of words too long. <laughs> you call your book The Lead. And of course, you spell it correctly, the way we would spell the lead mm. in the newspaper. And I want to read you what I think may be your favorite lead. You put it in the book. It's also from a Louisiana newspaper. And I'll read it. Maybe you can parse it for me. The lead of the story is a veterinarian prescribed antibiotics Monday to a camel that lives behind an Iberville Parish truck stop after a Florida woman told law enforcement officers she bit the 600 pounds animal's genitalia after it sat on her when she and her husband entered its enclosure to retrieve their deaf dog. I love that paragraph. Uh, one of the things I, I'm particularly uh, uh, entranced with is that it's all one sentence. There's there's only one sentence there, and 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 he manages uh, to get that story. And you and I, you when my friend James Edmund sent it to me. Uh, at first, I couldn't read it without breaking out laughing. I'm finally able to do that. But the deaf dog is, is what got me at the end because it just seems to come out of left field somewhere. Um, I, I, I thought that was a great lead. Uh, and you didn't even have to read the story. You, you, you could, you, I, I imagined a sort of tableau with the Florida woman and her husband, the Florida man, uh, and saying, here, Fido, here, Fido. But the dog is deaf, of course. He can't, can't hear. Uh, and and uh, also the fact that, that, that nobody talks about what happened to the woman being sat on by a 600-pound camel. So I, I thought it was, uh, I, guess, I guess it remains my favorite lead that anybody ever wrote. Some of the great pieces in this book are profiles of uh, colorful legendary journalist. And let me throw a couple of them out, have you talk about them. What about Russell Baker? Russell Baker is fair to say a hero of mine. Um, 
the interesting thing about Russell Baker is that he wrote both serious columns and, and humorous columns. And, and he didn't have to label them. They, they, it sort of became obvious as you, as you went. And um, I think I mentioned the, when um, Russell was living uptown, he was walking down the street, walking down a sidewalk, and a potato fell, uh, apparently from a high window in one of those big buildings, and just missed him. And um, he wrote a column about how it would be, how it feel to be killed by a potato falling from a residential building. And, and uh, it would be terrible because people, were, even your friends, would get a little smile out of it. Uh, one time I was having trouble thinking of a column, and I said, uh, I think I'll take a walk. Maybe a potato will fall near me. And my wife said, Russell's already done the potato column. That's it. Uh, there's sticky-fingered Navasky in the book. <laughs> Uh, tell me about him and how you gave him that nickname. Well, uh, when he asked me uh, to write a, uh, a column for the nation, I, uh, I said, uh, uh, how much were you thinking about paying for each column? And he said, something of the high two figures. This and is Victor Navasky, the editor this of the, the nation. Yeah, the editor of the nation. And uh, I said, what? he said, We've been paying sixty-five. I said that—that that sounds like the middle two figures to me, sixty-five. Um, and before the before he was editor of the Nation, he had this occasional magazine called Monocle, uh, which paid even less than the Nation. I sent them a piece once, and they said they were publishing it, and they sent me a bill. So uh, the Nation was sort of an improvement. Then, then when when uh, I, I wrote a, uh, a poem, I was inspired by John Sununu. Um, uh, I love that name, Sununu, and I love the fact that he always thought he was the smartest guy in the room. And um, so I wrote a poem called If You Knew What Sununu, and uh, sent it to Victor. And he said, would, would you like to do one of these every issue? He was willing to pay me the same as he paid me for a column, even though a poem was shorter. And uh, I said, uh, well, it's $100 coming in, or rain or shine. Um, and then, it, of course, I realized that, that other periodicals paid poems by the line. Like the New Yorker was the highest paying at something like $10 a line. I was getting $100 no matter how long or short uh, the poem was. So um, if I wrote, say, a four-line poem uh, about uh, Lloyd Benson of Texas becoming the Secretary of Treasury, it was, um, the man is known for quo pro quidness. In Texas, that's how folks do business. Uh, that's $25 a line, still more than the New Yorker. How have you seen the role of journalists and the perception of journalists change? I think I think journalists are generally more respectable now. I think uh, is that a good or a bad thing? Probably bad, uh, but I think now if some uh, reasonably successful businessman is told that his daughter is uh, about to marry a reporter, uh, I don't think he tries to interfere at, the, at this point. Uh, 
but but uh, I th- I th- I, th- I think anytime you have too too much to protect, uh, it 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 sort of takes away from uh, how candid you are. So I I think that's probably not a good thing. But uh, I th- I think one of the ways to change is that journalists have changed. There are fewer of them. Or more of them, if you count all the bloggers and the people in the basements. What did, what did uh, somebody Trump say or something in 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 their underwear, uh, boxer shorts, doing blogs and, and and that? Then there are more journalists than there ever were. If that's if that's the uh, cutoff. The book ends the way your career began, with mm-hmm. the civil rights movement. There's a wonderful picture of you. In 1961, with John Lewis in the Birmingham bus station, that's the mm-hmm. author's picture of the book. Tell me, what was it like being in the Birmingham bus station as a young reporter interviewing a John Lewis or covering the Freedom Rides? Well, it was exciting, of course, and at least once, once or twice scary. I think it was uh, too dumb to know how scary it was. Um, and uh, uh, one of the, one of the one of the things on the Freedom Rides is uh, uh, Claude Sitton from the New York Times uh, was covering for the Times. He he was in the South for quite a while, and he's another person who who I thought of as a model reporter. Who um, uh, one of the difficulties which he saw by being just scrupulous about about everything was that. Um, it was hard to treat the sides equally. Um, I mean, there, there's no really uh, moral equivalence of the man who wants to vote and the man who burns his house down because he wants to vote, burns the other guy's house down. Uh, it's, I say in the book, it's not like covering the Michigan-Ohio State game. On the other hand, you you really can't... Obviously, be on on one side or another if you're a reporter. You write about covering during the civil rights movement Ruby Bridges, just a few blocks from here in New Orleans. Uh, as a six year old, I think she was in the early yeah. '60s, desegregating the school there. And then I think you met her again 50 years later. What was yeah. your feelings on that? Both the coverage of her at the time and then seeing her 50 years later. Well. One of the the other aspects of covering things in the South is people had to make really serious decisions about uh, Ruby Bridges' parents had to decide it was okay to send her to this school even though people are going to be yelling obscenities at her and she's only six years old. Um, and uh, it was not only her courage, but but the courage of her, of her parents. and. Uh, when I met her 50 years later, I said, it's really nice seeing you all grown up. Uh, and uh, those, again, as I was saying before, it's, it's covering regular, normal people uh, when they're in, in irregular and, and not normal circumstances. And what you say about that is that I had watched these ordinary people having to make momentous moral decisions. Yeah, that's 
That is true. Or, or a, the immigrant owner of a diner that was suddenly faced with a sit-in and whether he was going to seat them, which which uh, he wanted to because he sympathized with them. Uh, but did that mean the end of his business and his family uh, not having the support that they needed? So those are those are big decisions made by everyday people. Calvin Trillin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Walter. And finally, it's the end of an era for British Vogue's outgoing editor-in-chief as Edward Enifel unveils his final issue, featuring not one megastar, but 40. From supermodel Naomi Campbell to actress Jane Fonda, not only is this a logistical triumph, but Enifel finishes how he started over six years ago, championing inclusivity and diversity. Now, back in 2022, less than a year before he announced he would be stepping down, Christian asked him what he hoped his legacy would be. Take a listen. I'm proud that in 2017, people weren't having a conversation about diversity. There was the old you know, conversation that people of color didn't sell on covers. And I've been able to sort of have a little something to do with changing that perception and letting the world know that you know, people of color can sell magazines. You know, British Vogue is doing better now than it ever has in terms of advertising, you know, sales. So, you know, just to contribute to the world and say, you know, people on the outside can also contribute something amazing. I'm very proud of that. The old thing. Okay, got it. Yeah. You know, in this moment where multiculturalism in a way seems to be receding as a goal, and a full term really reminds us that fashion is more than just clothing. Now that final March issue hits newsstands next week. And that's it for now. Now, if you ever miss our show, you can find the latest episode shortly after it airs on our podcast. And remember, you can always catch us online, on our website, and all over social media. Thank you so much for watching. Goodbye from Washington. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.